0: so good morning everyone how are you today so thank you very much for coming uh, today we have a special talk by Tar Nielsen he's our office manager and also our one of our old Sangha members in the temple and Todd doing a lot of things in the temple to keep continuing our programs and our service and also he helped us a lot to develop our English and do our talks and thought today going to do something special. Let's see. <laughs> okay, so this is the name of the my talk. It's how the Buddha taught his method of answering questions and giving advice. Um, by the way, this is a uh, uh, wheel of the Dharma, um, the way the, the way the Buddha taught. Uh, he taught his first sutta was turning the wheel of the Dharma. So this is what you see, and he taught it in a deer park. And so this is what you will see on the um, tops of mostly Tibetan temples. shows the wheel of the Dharma evolving and... Shows two deer sort of adoring the wheel of the Dharma. So I'm gonna uh, read most of these and just add in some things as I go along. So the Buddha made it clear that right view and or might be called right knowledge and understanding and mindfulness are necessary for liberation from suffering and enlightenment. Monks, there are these two conditions for the arising of right view: which two? The voice of another that is learning, and appropriate attention that is mindfulness. So that is um, contained in one of the collections of the Buddha's teachings called the Anguttara Nikaya, and it's in Sutta number two. So, in the at the time of the Buddha, there was no writing, so that's why he says. Instead of reading a book, he says the voice of another. So that's how people learned in those days. So the, pur- the purpose of learning, sorry, that is the purpose of discussion, of counsel, of drawing near, of lending an ear. That is the liberation of the mind through non-clinging. Oh thanks. That's a little better, yes. So that's the purpose of learning. purpose of discussion, of counsel, of drawing near, of lending an ear, that is, the liberation of the mind through no clinging. That's also from the Anguttara Nikaya, the third sutta. So the Buddha said uh, when to give advice. The Buddha said to never give false advice and never give advice that will do no good for the other party. But if the advice is both true and will do some good, then you can use your common sense, your compassion and your wisdom to decide how and when to give it. So that's pretty straightforward for giving advice. And now we'll turn to questions. So when the Buddha was presented with a question, the Buddha focused on three issues. The way the question was framed by the questioner, the topic of the question, and the mental state of the questioner. Furthermore, he answered questions in four different ways and sometimes in a combination of the four ways so let's look at what are the four ways so these are the four ways of answering questions what which four this is uh, the words of the buddha actually here one there are questions that should be answered categorically in other words straightforwardly yes or no this or that true or false etc two There are questions that should be answered with an analytical or qualified answer, which clarifying or defining or redefining the terms of the question. Three, there are answers that should be answered with a counter-question. And four, there are questions that should be put aside, in other words, not answered. These are the four ways of answering questions, also from the Anguttara Nikaya. So the first one, what types of answers may be defined as categorical? So answers that don't change when dealing with changing circumstances are categorical. The Buddha himself labeled only two of his teachings as categorical. The first is the distinction between good and bad, bodily, verbal, and mental conduct. And the second is the Four Noble Truths. Acting on any of these teachings leads universally to specific outcomes. All other categorical questions are merely subsets of these two. As Sariputta, Sariputta was um, one of the um, students of the Buddha said, just as the footprints of all legged animals are encompassed by the footprint of the elephant, and the elephant's footprint is reckoned the foremost among them in terms of size, in the same way, all skillful qualities are included in the Four Noble Truths. That's from the Maj- Nikaya, which is another collection of the Buddhist teachings. Okay, the second one, what type of answers may be different? Analytical answers are those that analyze a statement or topic by giving a detailed explanation of all its important points. However, sometimes it is necessary to analyze a question in order to reframe the issue appropriately so that a categorical given, either the question has been stated in inappropriate terms due to mistaken assumptions or too few variables have been considered to make the question viable. So that's a little confusing, but here's an example. An example of the first type of question, mistaken assumptions, is... Someone might ask, what type of rebirth is determined by a person's present caste? So a caste, you know, in ancient India, well, actually in present India, people are divided into four castes. And um, at that time, someone wanted to know what type of rebirth is determined by a person's present caste. So the answer, of course, is a person's caste has no bearing on his or her rebirth. Only their actions do, their actions create the karma for their rebirth. An example of a sep- second type of too few variables is a question posed by a wandering monk. He asked the Buddha what kind of karma or kama a person accumulates by performing a mental action. The Buddha realized that he meant to ask, what does a person experience when performing a mental, verbal or bodily action and what does the experience lead to? which is a much better question the answer is a pleasant an unpleasant or a neutral feeling which leads to attachment aversion or delusion the buddha went on to explain clinging and the 12 links in the chain of dependent origination to the wandering monk uh, we can't get can't go into those today they're very deep subjects but you can see someone uh, might ask the buddha a very sort of nebulous question and the Buddha would reframe it in a very um, straightforward way so that he could answer it straightforwardly. And the third one, what types of questions should be answered with the counter question? So uh, there are two closely related times when a question should be answered by a counter question. In the first instance answering with a question began the process of discussion and debate between the Buddha and his listeners and students. In this way the questioner could have all of his or her doubts addressed and removed. This shows that the Buddha was not only interested in providing answers but that he wanted to make sure that his students thoroughly understood the answers. In the second instance the Buddha recommended self-questioning as a best way to understand the differences between wholesome, skillful, blameless actions and their opposites. So we'll see a good example of that later. Here he talks about it, consider what is skillful, venerable sir, what is unskillful, what is blameworthy, what is blameless, what should be cultivated, what should be abandoned. What having been done by me will be for my own long-term harm and suffering, or what having been done by me will be for my long-term benefit and happiness. So here you get a little taste of the way, um, the suttas are written. The suttas, like I said before, were not written down when the Buddha spoke them. They were, there was no written language at that time, only spoken. So the monks and the nuns would, um, memorize what the Buddha said. And that's why the, um, as you see here, things are repeated, a lot. Yes. Um, 12 links, do you guys have, like, the twelve links and dependent origination. There's a lot to it, and it sounds like really, It is very interesting. Um, I think what the Buddha taught by. Walpola. <laughs> probably has a discussion of it but it's sort of the language in that book is very dense um, but actually uh, you can Google there's you know on Wikipedia has a Buddhist portal if you go there and then you just Google I mean you search for the 12 links of dependent origination there's a pretty good ex- explanation in Wikipedia Um or you could ask one of the monks. <laughs> so getting back, thanks for that question. A uh, very good example of answering a question with questions is provided by the famous Kalama Sutta. The Sutta tells a story of a group of villagers who belong to the Kalama tribe. We studied this, actually studied the Sutta last Saturday, Saturday before last in Sutta study. Uh, getting back. So the Kalamas lived on the periphery of the sophisticated society that was developing in the Ganges Valley at the time of the Buddha, that's in northern India, and they were unfamiliar with the philosophies and the theories of the various schools of thought developing at that time. The Kalamas were troubled by the constant parade of monks, priests, and yogis who passed through their town, each espousing a universal doctrine while disparaging all the others. So when the Buddha came to their village, the villagers asked him about it. They got all excited. They wanted to um, talk to the Buddha. Instead of lecturing them in his own teachings, the Buddha, using a series of questions, counter questions actually, told them in a roundabout way that they are answer. So the Kalamas asked, Venerable Sir, there is doubt, there is uncertainty in us concerning them. The Kalamas told the Buddha, which of these reverend monks and priests speak the truth and which speak falsehood? So here they're asking about all these monks and priests and yogis who come to their village and start talking about um, what they should believe in. And they're telling the Buddha that they're um, puzzled by um, what they should believe. So the Buddha replied, of course you are in certain kalamas, of course you are in doubt. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So I like it that the Buddha didn't start espousing, um, teaching them his own doctrines. He just went right into asking them these very basic questions that showed that they already knew right from wrong. So the Buddha continued, what do you think, Kalamas? When greed arises in a person, does it arise for welfare, welfare or for harm, for harm, Lord? And this greedy person, overcome by greed, is mind possessed by greed, kills living beings, takes what is not given, goes after another person's spouse, tells lies or induces others to do, to do likewise. Do all these actions lead to long-term harm and suffering? Yes, Lord. Likewise, when hate arises in a person, or when a delusion arises in a person, does it arise for welfare or for harm? for harm, Lord." So backing up a little, um, there are the three poisons in our minds that make us unhappy. And um, he talks about them here, greed, hatred, and delusion. He continued, So what do you think, Kalamas? Are these qualities skillful or unskillful? Unskillful, Lord. Blame worthy or blame less? Blame worthy, Lord. Criticized by the wise or praised by the wise? Criticized by the wise Lord, when adopted and carried out do they lead to harm and to suffering or not? When adopted and carried out they do lead to harm and to suffering, that is how it appears to us. Going on, what do you think when lack of greed arises in a person or generosity? Does it arise for welfare or for harm? For welfare, Lord. And this generous person, not overcome by greed, his mind not possessed by greed, doesn't kill living beings, doesn't take what is not giving, doesn't go after another person's spouse, doesn't tell lies or induce others to do likewise. Do all these actions lead to long-term welfare and happiness? Yes, Lord. Likewise, when lack of hatred arises in a person, or when lack of delusion arises in a person, Does it arise for welfare or for harm? For welfare, Lord. So what do you think, Kalamas? Are these qualities skillful or unskillful? Skillful, Lord. Blame worthy or blame less? Blame less, Lord. Criticized by the wise or praised by the wise? Praised by the wise, Lord. When adopted and carried out, do they lead to welfare and happiness or not? Adopted and carried out, they do lead to welfare and to happiness. That is how it appears to us. The Buddha continued, It is proper for you, Kalamas, to doubt and to be uncertain. Come, Kalamas, do not go upon what has been acquired. Here he's talking about the other uh, wandering monks and people. Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in a scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon an axiom, nor nor upon specious reasoning, nor upon a bias towards a notion that has been pondered over, nor upon another seeming ability, nor upon the consideration, this monk is our teacher, when you yourselves know These non-virtuous things are bad, these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise. Undertaken and observed, these things lead to harm and ill will, and ill, abandon them. When you yourselves know these virtuous things are good, these things are not blamable, these things are praised by the wise. Undertaken and observed, these things lead to benefit and happiness. Enter on and abide in them. So that's the Kalama Sutta, which is in the Anguttara Nikaya uh, Third Sutra, in that collection. Okay, then the fourth one, let me check the time. Go a little fast. uh, What types of answers should be set aside, in other words, not answered? The Buddha concluded that answering certain questions would be unhelpful in some situations, but not in others, largely for reasons of etiquette. For instance, it would be (coughs) rude and divisive to disparage the teachings and attainments of teachers of the other sex. It would also be rude and divisive to tell someone point blank that their livelihoods are unskillful. If a teacher disparages another teacher, his motives become suspect. If he criticizes a particular occupation, he risks setting himself up as a judge, condemning those who did not ask for his opinion. It is better to remain silent on this matter until people have had time to assimilate the teachings about skillful actions. And then at other times, the Buddha concluded that answering some questions would not be helpful in any situation because they are inherently unconducive to liberation and enlightenment. A good example are the ten unanswered questions. So uh, what are the ten unanswered questions? The Buddha considered the questions concerning the creation of the world and the universe and the nature of a person's soul unworthy of contemplation. He said speculation of that type will lead only to disputes, bewilderment and fanaticism and does nothing to alleviate the suffering in the world or for individuals. What should be studied is not existence itself, but the phenomena engendered by it. The only questions worthy of attention are the causes and conditions of such phenomena, how to deal with them, and one's correct attitude toward them. So these are the ten questions. Questions one and two are, are the body and consciousness one and the same? or are they two completely separate entities? Questions three and four, is the universe spatially finite or infinite? Questions five and six, is time finite or infinite? Questions seven through 10, does the consciousness of a fully enlightened being, Tathagata, exist after the death of the the Tathagata's body or does it not? Or does it both exist and not exist? or does it neither exist nor not exist? So that last four questions are an example of Indian philosophy where they cover every base possible for questions. By answering in specific ways one may reveal one's belief in either nihilism or nihilism or in eternalism. A nihilist will say that the body and the consciousness are one, so that when the, his or her body dies, so too will his or her own consciousness. Therefore, for the nihilist, in other words, no, there will be no more karma created. Therefore, for the nihilist, the universe and time are finite, because they will cease to exist for the nihilist when the body dies. The same will happen to Tathagata's consciousness after the, after death. And because there is no future existence, there is no need to practice virtues or a spiritual path in this life. An eternalist will say that the body and consciousness are separate. Consciousness is eternal and unchanging after the body dies in this life. In other words, a God-created soul and a God-created universe. And depending on the actions taken only in this life, a soul, or consciousness, will spend eternity in heaven or hell, unchanging and unchanging. Therefore, the universe and time are infinite. The Buddha, the Buddha taught the middle way between such extreme views, dependent origination, so we came back to that one. Actually, that's the end. May the merit of our efforts benefit all sentient beings. So, any questions? This is sort of mind-blowing, this one is. Um, but if you think about it long enough, it makes sense. Something <laughs> Right. So, there's a, sort of right. Um, so uh, th- there's a consciousness, a very subtle consciousness that goes from lifetime in Buddhist philosophy, from lifetime to lifetime. Um, but there is no permanent self. I think that's what you're talking about. Um, you know, we, there's a temporary self that gets run over by cars we, if, <laughs> if we're not careful. And then we die, but in the um, Buddhist philosophy, there's a very subtle consciousness that's not connected to the body. So it's, not, it's not. like my memory, my you know, personality, all this. Exactly right. So, so. Right. Right. So um, this sometimes it's called storehouse consciousness, just to make it easier to understand. So. Uh, using the bodily actions, this body and our minds, which are part of our body, um, we generate karma, good or bad. And uh, those seeds are put into the storehouse consciousness. And that subtle consciousness, when our body dies and our brain dissolves and we have no more memories, that subtle consciousness will go on to be reborn in a new body. Um, And depending on the the habituation or the karma that we've um, put into that storehouse consciousness, those seeds will sort of ripen in the future, and um, good things or bad things will happen to us. And um, also going backwards, we cannot find the beginning of this consciousness. So um, one of the, I guess you'd have to say, it's something you have to take on faith in Buddhism, that time is real, and that cause and effect actually happen. So if we, if we think about our mind right now, it's different from what it was a minute ago and uh, what it was a year ago, what it was when we were babies, and even going back to before, or actually when we were conceived, um, that consciousness just didn't come out of nothingness. There was a cause for it. So we cannot really find the beginning of this consciousness that we all have. And it, that consciousness will die, or can die, once we are enlightened, and we're not creating any more karma, good or bad, and then it will cease to exist. But that's <laughs> very hard to attain. So that's sort of a very deep um, philosophy in Buddhism, and it does it does um, depend on dependent origination. So I would urge you to look that up. Google it or find it in a book. Any other questions? Good, okay.